Hello, everybody. Welcome back once again to the Great Scott Podcast. Today, I am joined by Chief Correspondent with CBS News, Mr. Jim Axelrod. How's it going, Jim? Mike, good to be with you. Is that a pretty uh, accurate description of your uh, of your current job? Yeah, I've never been one who's too terribly uh, hung up on titles or anything like that. But basically, um, I work for CBS News in a couple of different capacities. I'm the Chief Investigative Correspondent. But I also do a little work for 48 hours, do some work for Sunday morning. I do uh, some work for the evening news and for CBS this morning. I'm, I'm just a sucker for a good story, Michael. <laughs> so you're always working, in, in other words, no, yeah. no, no days off. Well, I, uh, you know, the news business is, I've always said to people, um, we're not big in ditches, right? Like we're, we're basically, what's not to love about a job that involves telling stories, meeting interesting people, interviewing them, writing up a story that ends up being um, watched or heard by millions of people. It's, it's, uh, it's not a bad way to make a living. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would agree with you. Uh, in all of your years, and this might be uh, maybe a broad, too broad of a question, but uh, what has been the most fascinating story that you've gotten to cover? Well, I don't, you know, I've, I've, I've had a range of experiences and it's hard to put my finger on just one. I mean, I've, you know, been in Iraq and been in Afghanistan. I was in the front row of the White House for uh, three years. I, I've had a, a lot of different kinds of experiences, but the ones that are most memorable, uh, the most touching are uh, stories that really are about the connection between people. Um, I have a story coming up on 48 hours uh, within a couple of weeks that has to do with a the first heart transplant recipient in the Washington, D.C. area, a woman by the name of Eva Basie, who was um, given this heart transplant, expected to live a couple of years, and she's now 33 years plus uh, on the backside of it. And the story of where the heart comes from is just fascinating. And that'll be in 48 hours, as I say, uh, it probably uh, the weekend of February uh, 20, uh, I think it's the 22nd, it'll be running. Um, anyway, so so I've had stories, you know, met some really interesting people, I've interviewed sort of some bold-faced names, but I, I find the most interesting and compelling stories generally come from people that aren't familiar I mean, who doesn't love sitting across from Paul McCartney or <laughs> yeah. Springsteen or Barack Obama or George Bush? But the ones that I remember, um, there's a there's a young fella uh, who lives in Greenwich, Connecticut, by the name of Sam Buck, who has uh, a very rare disease that uh, is life threatening. And you spend 30 seconds in the presence of this kid and you're transformed by mm -hmm. his decency and strength and courage and and that's somebody, you know, that, that isn't as well known, obviously, as some cultural bold-faced name. But my time, every time I see him, and certainly the story I put together about him, uh, is something I'll remember, you know, long after uh, I'm done working. I would say, Jim, you have one of the best jobs in, in the world for everything that you get to do. Yeah, it's, it's uh, something I try never to take for granted. Um, I, I do feel like uh, my my complaining if I'm complaining, I really ought to, uh, I really ought to check my pulse and see that <laughs> I mean, there's nothing to complain about here. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, it's funny people, I think in life generally, whatever your norm is, you can find ways to, to focus on stuff that may not be 
um, optimal at a particular time, but I think it's a critical life skill to be able to just sort of see the big picture. And when I look at my big picture, um, I just say a lot of thank yous because I have a very interesting way to make a living. Absolutely, absolutely. So one thing I wanted to, to touch on is uh, the, the book that you wrote, uh, in, in the long run. Um, I just thought that was a fascinating and uh, touching book. It would, uh, would you say that's um, a tribute to your dad, primarily? It is. It is. It's a, a tribute to my father, but also, um, truth be told, it is a story of a complicated relationship as well. Um, because, and, and it's something as I get older, I understand so much more about when it comes to my dad, uh, you know, men in particular, well, men and women really, uh, at this point. Um, but my, my, obviously my perspective comes from being a son and now being a father, I found the big challenge is that when your kids are little, you're also uh, in the process as a, as a, somebody who's building a career, father or mother, um, you're, you're building a career at the same time that those kids need 110% of you. And that balancing act, um, you, you know, you, you, sort of, you live your life going forward, you understand it looking backward, um, Kierkegaard said, right? Not that I have a working knowledge of, of Kierkegaard, but that's the <laughs> one line that I, I do understand. And it's the whole story, the book I wrote is about, in, in part, this process of being intense at a certain point in your life 30s, 40s, whenever you're building your career, in many cases, you're also trying to raise a family. And that's just, there's no rule book on that. And nobody does it perfectly. And everybody is left with both the kids and the parents, some sort of bruise pattern and set of regrets, uh, because it's an impossible balancing act. So I have um, a wonderful, supportive wife, who, uh, the way it worked just for us, was that you know she could be home full time, and that was a luxury um, that turned out to really be the glue that held our family together because I was running around and Absolutely. you can't be in two places at once. As I began to understand how I was falling short, um, I, I it helped me sort of. My dad had been gone by then; he was he had passed away in January of 2000, and it helped me understand some of the choices he made, or even unconscious. Um, directions that, you know, the directions he went in unconsciously, it helped me understand that because I too was suffering or, or struggling, I should say, with the same kinds of uh, challenges of trying to be in two places at once. Now, you also ran a, uh, a, a marathon uh, in, your 40s. <laughs> in your 40s. Was that uh, something that you kind of uh, never saw coming or that you uh, didn't expect to do? But uh, yeah. yeah. I needed to, Michael. I, I... I looked like I was in my second trimester and um, I needed to uh, get rid of some weight. I also, um, this ties in, you know, my dad was a big runner. And so it helped me sort of, uh, as I was working things out uh, with sort of the memory of a guy who was now at that point, he had been gone seven, eight years. And I wanted to just sort of untangle a few knots. And I thought, Marathon training was a great way to not only get myself in physical shape, but try to get myself in some semblance of of emotional shape as well. Uh, you know, can't say. I mean, I, I ran two marathons. It was great. Uh, I don't think I could run another one. I think my running days are behind me. Um, but the oh no, I'm sure that. So I'm sure. So I'm sure that you could do it again, Jim. I have faith in you. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, Michael. I do. 
So uh, as you were running this race, and this is uh, kind of an interesting question, but I'm curious, uh, as you were running the race, could you um, maybe picture your father being right next to you running with you, or maybe you could feel his spirit as you were running this marathon? Well, I definitely felt, you know, the New York Marathon is one of the great experiences anybody can have in life. I mean, it's it's just the most wonderful, inspirational, uh, in my case, uh, four and a half hours available um, to people. And my dad, certainly, I was checking in sort of with the idea and the thought that he had run the same path, uh, you know, a generation before. But as I came around, the, the marathon ends you come up in Manhattan, Central Park South, and then you duck into Central Park. And as I made that turn, I did feel a very strong sense of the fact that I had sort of, as I say, untangled some knots and settled, yeah. settled some um, unsettled parts of me. And we definitely ran across the finish line together. So it was a, it was a very meaningful, deeply moving moment for me. Now, had you, run, had you ever run a marathon before that? I had not. I'd run high school track, uh, and I was uh, as mediocre as mediocre gets. Um, <laughs> but I had always, you know, it's, running's one of those things, like, I've never come back from a run in a worse mood than I started the run. Like, there's always an elevation of, maybe it's just the endorphins, um, but it's always a, a good investment of your time, whether it's 20 minutes or an hour and a half, whatever it is. So I enjoyed the benefits of running. I can't say I was particularly accomplished at it um but i i did enjoy i did enjoy the benefits and unfortunately all those years of pounding uh the orthopedist tells me my running days are done and get on the elliptical yeah so i i do spend some time uh on the elliptical now as opposed as opposed to the road but i do i miss the road i miss i miss that hour uh out on the streets and the feeling that stays with you long after you're finished I was going to say, yeah, you you are still in in pretty good shape. That you still, uh, I was going to ask you if you still still exercise. Yeah, you know what's you know what's I'm starting to uh, starting to mess around with a little bit uh, is is the diet. And I don't want to sound, I keep I keep joking with my my pals. I don't want to be that guy, but I've started uh, exploring a little bit about changing up the way I eat. Uh, and and at this point, I don't know if I'll still be here two weeks, two months, or two years later. But this plant-based eating, uh, I'm finding to be as important in staying in shape. I exercise a lot, a lot. And, and yet the weight stays sort of relatively uh, stable and maybe not at the number I want it to be. And I'm always like, well, wait a minute. And then you realize exercise is just a, a portion of that. And so actually I'm starting to look into doing a piece about the notion of of whether or not we're going to see some sort of cultural shift as more people become aware of the benefits of vegetarian and, and vegan, basically plant-based eating. Um, it's, it's, it's just currently sort of what's got my attention to, as you realize, exercise alone will never get it done. Since you uh, mentioned the, the diet thing, and something I'm curious about, when you are out on the road, uh, Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nothing, yeah. Nothing good happens on the road, especially when it comes to your eating. Um, although I, I, you know, a lot of, a lot of, um, you know, your basic CVS or Walgreens, they always have hummus and pretzels in their little cooler. There's vegetables. There's oh, like we're eating better. The worst I find to me, the biggest challenge, uh, there's still parts of the country where you go to a convenience store 
and it is hard to find something uh, <laughs> healthy to eat. Those so 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 now it's the question: of How long um, can I go sort of hungry for? But um, but that's the, always the biggest challenge on the road is finding uh, is finding a way to to not blow up whatever dietary progress you've been making. Uh, so since you are out on the road a lot, and I'm uh, I'm curious, is there a part of you that sometimes wishes that you didn't ha- have to travel, that you could stay in in uh, where, where you're at a, a little bit more? Yeah, you know, I always um, say to my wife, uh, I I don't want to be in a hotel one night more than I have to be. Um, and when you're in your just starting out, it's so fun and romantic and glamorous, and you're hopping on planes and you're staying in different parts of of, of the country or even internationally. And it's, it's what, what's not to love. And then you realize as I've, as I've gotten older, I don't enjoy being away from my home as much. And my two of my kids are now out of the house. I have one at home still. And I want to make sure that I squeeze everything out of the experience of, of the last one, because he'll be gone in a couple of years. And so I often now, you know, I live, I live uh, in the New York city area. Um, in New Jersey, and I will fly, say, from Newark to Dallas or Newark to Minneapolis and back. I'll take the first plane out and the last one back, just because I, 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 I it's pretty simple calculus for me in my life. I want to drive my kid to school for as many days as I possibly can because it's the last chance. There you go. Absolutely. So, uh, so I have to ask: Have you been to the Kansas City before? Have I been to Kansas City? I was. Yeah. With, I was in, you know, yes. The answer is yes. Um, I've eaten steak in Kansas City, which is, uh, despite my uh, advocacy of plant-based eating, there is nothing better. As I recall, when I was there last, there was nothing better than a nice steak in Kansas City. But I was there um, with John Kerry at the train station for a rally in 2004. Um, I've been back and forth a couple of times, I'm sure. Um, just because I, you know, I, 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 sometimes I don't remember what I ate for lunch yesterday. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) So when it comes to travel, in fact, I've just started keeping a journal this year, just a couple of, not like a deep thoughts journal, but just like a, Hey, where were you each day of the year? Like, where did you work? What did you do? Um, you know, where did you wake up? Did you get your exercise in? I just want a little record because I have these images of like, I remember being in the Kansas city airport actually. And um, getting on the plane, and they held the plane at the gate, and Gerald Ford was flying mm. on that plane. And so I often, when I'm, whenever I see a picture of Gerald Ford, I always think about the Kansas City airport for some reason. Like, <laughs> but, but those those big moments that happen that you have memories of, there's a gazillion little moments that just sort of dissipate or disappear out into the the ether. And I want a record of all of those. I want to. I want to remember the mundane parts of the year as much as as much as like remembering Gerald Ford getting on my airplane, that kind of thing. Would you say uh, that uh, traveling for you is kind of the toughest part uh, of of your job uh, since you are away from from your family? Yeah, definitely. Although let's keep this in perspective. There are many people who do many more difficult, demanding things in life than getting on an airplane. And oh, sure. There. Sure. Absolutely. And so, so I, yes, of course. Um, but at the end of the day, you're, I'm basically dealing with a bad mood. I was in Dallas last week and I rushed there. I was going to get on a 5:30 plane. I had to be on CBS this morning, the next morning out of New York at seven o'clock. So that means getting up at four 30 or five. So 
I was going to be on a plane out of Dallas, 5.30 in the afternoon, gets me home at 9.30 with the time change. I'll be in bed by 11. I'll get five hours. It'll be fine. Well, of course, sitting there at DFW, 5.30 turns into 6.30, 7.30, 8.30. I walked in my door at 1.30 in the morning. Oh, man. Um, Now, if that's the biggest issue I have, like the the biggest thing I have to deal with professionally, I'm fine. I'm fine. I was a little tired. And so basically dealing with travel is basically dealing with a bad mood. Now, I will say, Michael, I will say it's not always humanity at its finest. People manage to put, people manage to forget that we are sort of living in this communal situation on an airplane. And it's a lot of me firsters. You see a lot of that on the airplane. And um, I just wish everybody could just take a chill. We're all going to get there. We're all smushed into this little tube together. Um, That would certainly make things a little nicer. But I stick my headphones on and just try to remember that, again, I'm a very fortunate man. So I have to ask you, um, what do you think of this 2020 election? Uh, Any uh, candidates that come to mind that you think uh, could override Trump? Well, I do think what we're seeing and, you know, we're talking today uh, after the New Hampshire primary. And um, I sort of it's always an interesting thing to see this process of how the attention it's sort of like the turret shifts. And now the spotlight, Amy Klobuchar certainly earned uh, an exploration, an examination. Um, I think what you're going to see with the Democrats is there's going to be this, if you look at Klobuchar and Buttigieg, you have this moderate part of the Democratic Party that's split, right? And so when you get to Super Tuesday and Michael Bloomberg gets involved in the picture, you could really have um, a a real sort of fracturing of the moderate vote within the Democratic Party. And the way that the primary, the delegates are uh, allocated is different with the Democrats than it is with the Republicans. Republicans have a winner-take-all. Democrats have this proportional allocation. So if you keep having this fracturing of the moderate part of the Democratic Party, that looks that argues pretty well for Bernie Sanders. Um, and and the calendar then gets pretty soon after Super Tuesday, you end up in a situation where a candidate like Bernie Sanders, if he does, and especially with Warren dropping out, um, you have a situation where he could have this thing there's a conceivably could have this thing wrapped up um, fairly early. And it's an interesting dynamic. Michael Bloomberg, we've never seen this before. Is he going to come in and rewrite the rules of, of Democratic Party politics? Or is he just going to be a billionaire version of Ralph Nader? So I, I do think Amy Klobuchar introduces um, a kind of candidacy that might be, first of all, I don't think the, the, the Trump uh political uh, uh, apparatus has really been sort of considering she might be an issue and how do you run against her? She's very strong in the Midwest. You know, if you're you're running Donald Trump's campaign, you have to be concerned about winning the same coalition in Wisconsin and Michigan and Ohio and those uh, strong states. Minnesota, they talked about as being in the mix. Certainly Klobuchar uh, puts Minnesota more at risk for the Trumps uh, at, for the Trump campaign, and so she, to me, as 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 everyone takes a little bit more of an examination of her, she could have some legs here. Um, now, uh, so yes, I, I do think it's an interesting part of the process. It's just not going to last very long where people, you know, take this exploration. Of course, no, like everybody else, I, I want to see what happens with Bloomberg, just because it's never been done before. 
I think it's going to come down to Bloomberg versus Trump. I really do. I think he's going to be the face of the of the Democratic Party. And uh, let me let me ask you: Did the Iowa caucus uh, surprise you at all with the results? No, not a bit. I mean, the the way they didn't, the way it was mangled. Um, uh, you know, certainly, it, it, if anything, in my view, it's just going to allow those. It empowers people who want to talk about the irrelevance of of the Iowa caucuses in terms of not being a representative state, in terms of this arcane way of of, of assigning delegates, uh, allocating delegates. I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if that's sort of the end of the Iowa caucuses as the first in the first in the nation voting. Um, but uh, to me, having been through a couple of these campaigns, uh, you know, you 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 realize Iowa and New Hampshire just sort of gets the conversation started. Yeah. Um, and then South Carolina and Nevada and then on to a Super Tuesday situation is it's intense. It's relatively concentrated. But I don't you know, you look at the record of how many times the Iowa, New Hampshire winners have ended up um, being the nominee. Uh, certainly better to do well there than not, but I, I, there's nothing I saw there that, that was surprising or critical. So, uh, Jim, let me ask you this final question, and uh, you, you've been more than generous with your time, sir, and I absolutely appreciate it. And uh, what advice would you give to someone who wants to get into the correspondence field or, or reporting? Yeah, so I've always, I've always, felt, I've always felt like this, and I'm, now I'm going to sound like a 137-year-old man. <laughs> okay, Cause, and that's okay. I love the old school. Yeah. But at, in this day and age, to me, where can you where can you leave footprints as a journalist? You can leave your footprints by telling stories in a way that are accessible stories, compelling stories, stories that highlight sort of human connection. But the key to being able to do that is learning how to write. And I know this is going to, again, sound like writing, what, what, like what? But yes, how you write a story, how you conceive of a story, how you div divine sort of the narrative and how you, um, what story you're trying to tell and how you're able to conceptualize that and then execute that. To me, that's the secret of doing the kind of work that not only will elevate you and distinguish you, but also make you feel proud of what you do for a living. So I always say the best part of this business is that you certainly don't need to be a Rhodes Scholar. Um, there's a long tradition of, of journalism as sort of a, uh, a trade, a working class trade with the, the origins of it. I, I love the fact that it's sort of who wants to work hardest, who wants to show up earliest, who wants to stay latest, and then who wants to develop their skill set in terms of, of interviewing and writing and and conceiving and developing narratives, um, that's who's going to be the most successful as a journalist. So, uh, you know, to me, what, what, when people ask me, how do I get to be good at this? Immerse yourself, dive deep, learn your skills, um, and love the art of telling stories above and beyond everything else, and, and you should be fine. Did you uh, did you go to school for journalism, or did you happen to just fall into this, or or a combination? I have, yeah, I have a I have a history degree. I taught school for three years out of college. I went back to grad school thinking I'd be a history professor. I think I would have been the world's worst history professor. So I got out um, with a master's, and and sort of a, I jumped into journalism sort of at the age of 26 after um, a, a false start. 
And I, I, which is why I also believe like, what did I learn through all of that? Well, I learned how to think and learned how to write. And so those were the, the best skill I ever had. The best, the best preparation for what I do was I spent 10 summers waiting tables. Mm. And I think you learn more as a waiter uh, about how to deal with people and how to uh, sort of deal with information, the exchange of information, and then the delivery um, of a product based on that. I learned more from 10 summers of waiting tables at the Harvey Cedar Shellfish Company uh, in on Long Beach Island, New Jersey, than I learned doing anything else in, in terms of today. You certainly get your fair share of um, of in, endurance as well, being a, a waiter. <laughs> That is true, Michael. <laughs> well, anyways. All right. Well, Jim Axelrod, thank you so much for your time, sir, and thank you for coming on. Okay, Mike. All the best to you. Thanks for having me. All right. No problem, sir. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.